Thank you, Cody. And Cody does, uh, once again, does a fantastic job of pouring into the life of these students. And so if you have a 7th through 12th grader, uh, make Wednesday night a part of your week here at Community. Allow them to get plugged into the life of this ministry so they continue to, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, make sure that they're, they're plugged in on, on Sunday mornings as well. Uh, he does such a great job of, of building up uh, the kingdom of God, and, and we're thankful for Pastor Robbie and the way that he pours in uh, to the kids. And uh, we need more uh, individuals to serve alongside of those that have already given up their time to come alongside these that uh, make up those ministries. And so you can see Cody or you can see Pastor Robbie, you can see uh, Miss Stephanie in regards to jumping in and serving in those various areas of ministry. T- today is really a continuation of a celebration that began last night. Uh, three years ago, on August 16th, we, we launched out as an autonomous church, uh, and it really was in that moment a time of a lot of unknown, uh, and I can speak for myself that uh, there was some trepidation and apprehension of uh, what all this was going to look like and how all this was going to play out and what God has done in the life of this church over the past three years has been nothing short of amazing. I don't know why we would expect anything else because he is an amazing God that sheds his amazing grace out upon his people. Uh, I want to say thank you for those that were able to, um, that poured in to make last night so special. Uh, Mindy Beers, Carrie Sow, our deacons, uh, Disaster Relief, yeah, our staff. Um, I got to see 40 individuals baptized last night, and that was so special. And as we look back over the life of this, this church, I often say numbers aren't everything, but they are some things. Uh, just like when you go to the doctor and you get uh, numbers, kind of give you a good idea of what's going on with you and where you're at health-wise. Uh, for us, when we look over the past three years, we've seen 123 individuals go from death to life through faith in Jesus Christ, and we've seen 169 individuals be baptized in, the well, really the past two and a half years. And so... We praise, the, we praise the Lord uh, for what it is that, that he has done and what it is that, that he is doing. And so we want to give him all of the glory. And it is important for us to point everybody that is gathered here today to Jesus because he is the answer for the brokenness of this world. And he is the only hope uh, that we have. And so this morning, we welcome you if you're a guest uh, if you are just joining in with us, you're, you're jumping in in uh, a series that we have been in for quite a few months, uh, really all year and a little bit before Christmas time. We started looking at the life and the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we've been trying to, as best as we can, uh, put it in chronological order to look at the flow of the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Last week, we looked at the call of his 12 apostles. So about roughly uh, a year and a half into his earthly ministry, he called 12 disciples to be apostles uh, to himself out of the larger group of disciples that had begun to follow him as the Savior of the world, as the Son of God. In Luke's parallel account of the passage of Scripture that we're going to be in today, uh, immediately following that that calling of the 12, uh, Jesus preaches what is known as a sermon on the plane. Uh, 
today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, uh, where we come to the very, um, almost the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, I believe, it's just Jesus in different locations preaching primarily the same message. Uh, is the core tenets of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so you do see some variance between Luke's gospel account and Matthew's gospel account. Uh, But just as you'll hear me say various things over and over again, I'm sure if you've been at community for any length of period of time, you've heard me say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody needs Jesus any more than anybody else. Nobody needs Jesus any less than anybody else. We all desperately need Jesus the same. So to what Jesus is doing as he is going and he is preaching in these various towns and he's taking this core message of what it means to be a disciple of his and he's preaching in different areas. And this morning we're going to look at Matthew's account that Jesus is preaching to his disciples and a group of other individuals, a multitude of individuals that have gathered that are listening in as well. And this morning we are going to look at, uh, through this message, uh, the premise of us needing to stay plugged in and the priority that is. Now, one thing that uh, I am not is I am not technologically savvy. Uh, technology is not something that is a strong suit of mine whatsoever. And there have been times in my life where I need some help. I need somebody that has that technological wisdom to come alongside of me and help me to figure out what is going on. Cody, usually I come to you. But there have been other times where I've actually had to call somebody and get some help over the phone. And there have been a few times in my life where I have been asked this question in regards to why my internet's not working, in regards why uh, some other kind of technology is not working, uh, is it plugged in? Now, that's almost insulting, right? But, hey, let's start with that. Is, is, it plugged, is it plugged in? Because the truth of the matter is, if it's not plugged in, you're not going to be able to accomplish very much. Now, I d- inherently kind of know that. Usually things, things are plugged in. Uh, I've never really had the answer to that question, no. And it seems so rudimentary, but it is also so imperative for us to understand that in the Christian life, it is not that we come to Jesus at one point in time, get saved, and now it's up in our own power and our own strength to go off and to live out the Christian life. No, no, no. It's not just plugging in to Christ Jesus through faith. It is staying plugged in to Christ Jesus. Because when we try to live the Christian life out in our own power, and our own strength, man, we start to take back upon ourselves burdens we were never meant to carry. And the Christian life becomes exhausting. The Christian life becomes a burden. But Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, because his burden is light. And so when we feel this heavy burden, something is wrong. And I think God's first question to each and every one of us, when we look at our lives and say, this isn't working the way that it should be working. This isn't working the way that the manual has said that it would work. The first question is, have you stayed plugged in? Are you plugged in? Is everything connected? And the greatest connection that we have is through prayer. And our text today is going to speak about prayer, but it's going to speak about the necessity of staying plugged in and abiding, as Christ will say in the book of John, abiding in Christ. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. Just like an internet, not plugged into the power source, it can do nothing. And us separated from Christ Almighty, we can accomplish nothing. And so as we look 
in the subsequent weeks and months at the Sermon on the Mount. It's imperative that we understand a few things. So um, we're going to have to lay a, a, some groundwork, and then we'll really pick up steam next week, okay? So before we get into our text, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork because it's, it's so important for us to know uh, how God's Word is laid out, to know the, the, the really overarching heart behind uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the text that we'll be looking at. Because it's easy to read the, the Sermon on the Mount because he looks at so many different things to divorce them from the rest of what has been spoken by Jesus in the sermon. Uh, and, and so we need to know the, the context of the message. And so the first thing uh, that, that we really need to know is the construction of the Sermon on the Mount. How is it laid out? Uh, so as Jesus is teaching, when we read, uh, we read it as a, a whole unit together, uh, the Sermon on the Mount that is given to us. And so if you want to take notes uh, on, the, on the back of your sheet or at the bottom of the sheet, I left uh, some room for you. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is really laid out in three main parts. There's an introduction, there's a main body, and there, there, there's a conclusion. The main body has some subsections, and we're going to look at that as we read. It's imperative that we understand the flow of Jesus' teaching. So the introduction is what is known as the Beatitudes, and then uh, it carries over into the fact that we're called to be salt and light. And so we see this introduction is that you, you, we are to, to be these, these things and that we are called to be the salt and the light. And then we go into the, cent, the central section, and it's really uh, um, condensed in what is called the pericope. Uh, so a, a, a pericope is, is this idea of something that is at the start of a passage and at the end of the passage. And this pericope is, is really given to us uh, with the idea of the law and the prophets. And so you, you will see that um, uh, displayed in uh, chapter 5 and then uh, chapter 7, verse, verse 12. And so the first subsection of the central heart of the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapter 5, 17 through 7, 12, is what is known as the sixth antithesis. This is where Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he speaks into six of these. And he talks about the fact that, listen, you are misappropriating what it is that God's word has is, is been trying to communicate to you. And then he moves away from the sixth antithesis, which is uh, chapter 5, uh, uh, 21 through 48, to talking about a proper application of the three pillars of Judaism. So Judaism really was propagated by, by th what they called three pillars, almsgiving, prayer, and the third one was fasting. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to speak into the reality of these three pillars and what it means as a follower of Jesus Christ, how, how to truly apply these things to our life. And then he moves into a look at money and possessions and the anxiety that materialism uh, produces in our lives. Then, then he moves to an exercise of proper judgment. As followers of Jesus Christ, how do we exercise proper judgment? This is very important for us in the life of the church today to truly understand what God's word is teaching when it talks about uh, us judging and, and judging individuals because there are many people outside of the church today that say, you're not supposed to judge anybody. Well, we're not supposed to give our personal judgment. But here's the, here's the thing. You've already been judged so when we speak into the sin of this world, it is not based upon our own judgment, taking upon ourselves what is good and evil. It is based upon what God's word has already revealed. So I'm not judging you. I'm telling you about the judgment that has already been passed upon this world by the right judge. 
Now, they will say, you, you, can't, you can't speak into anybody's life because you're judging them. No, no, no. I didn't judge you. God has judged you. God has judged this world. But you don't have to remain under that judgment. Here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can come underneath the salvific grace of Jesus through faith in him. And so we'll talk and teach about the proper judgment. And then there's a transition of what we're going to look at today. Transition into the conclusion. It's imperative that we understand why chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 are there. Before we ever even get into the Sermon on the Mount. Because we have been conditioned in such a way within the Western culture and the Western church to misapply and to, to take uh, out of context uh, a passage of Scripture like this and divorce it from, from what it is that Jesus is ultimately trying to teach, and we'll look at that here in just a second. Secondly, what we need to know when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, we need to know the content, uh, not just the, the structure, but the content. What is the heart? What is, what is Jesus trying to speak into the life of his disciples? And, and I'll tell you what it is not. It is not the new law. It's not some New Testament law that is replacing the Old Testament law that we are to follow in order to obtain salvation. I think oftentimes there are individuals that look at the Sermon on the Mount and they take and read through with this works-based mind frame that I've got to do these things to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I, 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 it's this idea of I've got to do this in order to earn security of my salvation, to earn a blessing and for me to be born again. I've got to do these things. But listen, Jesus didn't come to give us a new set of rules to follow. What would be the point of replacing the old set of rules with new set of rules when we couldn't even live up to the old set of rules? Because he didn't come and tell Nicodemus, you got to be born again by looking at in faith on Jesus just to give us a set of rules to then follow. He said, no, no, it's about me. It's about you placing your faith and trust in me. We don't believe in a works-based salvation. If there's works-based salvation, listen, we ought to better all go home. We can't do it. And what you will see is that message, that theme of reliance upon God and turning from self winds itself all the way through Scripture. And we see in verses 7 through 11, we see at the very heart of what Jesus is trying to teach us in this passage and in the Sermon on the Mount is that we cannot live apart from God Almighty. And it will radically change how you see the Sermon on the Mount and it will radically change how you read verses 7 through 11 of chapter 7. You see, the Sermon on the Mount expresses a kingdom ethic, which is the goal and ideal of all Christians. This is what we ought to be doing as followers of Jesus Christ. We are now citizens of another kingdom, and so we don't live like the world. So how is it as a disciple of Jesus we should live? And he plays that out for us in the Sermon on the Mount of how it is that we should follow after him. The application of the sermon does not secure for you salvation. The sermon is for those who have already been secured for eternity by God through faith in Christ to now live in accordance to God's word as a citizen of his kingdom. In other words, he's teaching his disciples the majority of the Sermon on the Mount is for believers. It's not for those that don't know Jesus of how to become Jesus. It's for those that have already repented of their sins and placed their faith and trust in Jesus. That is who is for. Now, we will see that he will turn 
At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he will turn his attention to those that have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the conclusion is about the contrast of the two ways. He'll talk about two trees. He'll talk about two foundations. He'll, he'll, he'll talk about uh, uh, um, two paths. And one leads to destruction and one leads to eternal life. But for us to, to truly grasp what is being taught in the Sermon on the Mount and, and what we find here in verses 7 through 11, we need to know the context of Matthew 7, 7 through 11 of the Sermon on the Mount. Really, we need to understand the context of the sermon itself. We get in grave danger when we divorce text from the context. And I see it in churches often where individuals will say, hey, we're going to look at, they'll say a verse, they'll read that verse, and then they never even talk about that verse. Or if they do, it's completely removed from the context of the passage of Scripture. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. That's one of them. Right? If we just write that under our eye black and we go out to the sports field, I always love it when somebody on the opposite team is claiming that same passage. Well, who's going to win? Who's more godly? Who's been praying more, right? Because you can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens Try that with a helicopter. Hop behind the, the, and start flying a helicopter and just cry out, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. You're going to see Jesus pretty soon. <laughs> it won't be long before you see him. And I just, I, I just see him looking at you like. <laughs> you turn out of the inside lane. What made you think you were going to fly the helicopter? Some of y'all, y'all are that person. <laughs> don't, don't do that. So what is the context? Because when you read, individuals will read this. Listen, we'll, we'll unpack this here in just a second. Listen, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. God's a genie in a lamp. All I got to do is ask. All I got to do is seek. All I got to do is knock. He's going to give me whatever it is I want. This is cool. Sign me up. Is that what this verse is talking about? Is that what Jesus is saying? You see, when you divorce a passage from the context of the book, when you divorce a passage from the context of the whole counsel of God that tells us, listen, he'll give you the desires of their heart if they align with him biblically and align with his heart. Yes. We must not divorce it from the context of God's word in its entirety. So those that were gathered, you had his disciples, and then you had the, uh, a bunch of other individuals that, that made up the, the community of Israel at that time. And there were four major groups, and their worldviews were being propagated within that time frame, within Israel. The first were the Pharisees, and they were all about outward appearance. And listen, if you were just polished enough, and if you just smiled bright enough, and if you just uh, lived out the list as best as you possibly can, you're good. And the people that weren't polished enough, and the people that weren't smiling bright enough, and the people that weren't checking off the, the box as well as you were, they were to be looked down upon. And the answer was to get more people to be more moral and to check off more boxes of the list. Then you have the Sadducees who really didn't believe in like the miracles of God. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that there was going to be a resurrection later. They were very practical. 
And they were trying to get ahead politically in different ways, sociologically, uh, that's a big word, sociologically, with, with, within their, their culture. And they sprinkled just a little bit of God into it because they thought that was the right thing to do. Then you had the Essians who said, y'all all go into hell in a handbasket, so we're out of here, and we're going to go on top of a mountain, and we're just going to seclude ourselves, and we don't want anybody in. We don't want anything to, to come around us that isn't of us, and we're not going to try to speak into the culture. We're not going to try to be light in the darkness. We're just going to have a holy huddle, and we're going to remove ourselves from the world. Then you had the zealots, and their answer was, we just got to kill people. We just got to kill people, and we got to set up a government system. We got to have a nationalistic system in place because the answer is godly. If we just have the right government in place, and we're the people that determine the right government, then we're going to be good. And you got those four groups of individuals alive and well today, do you not? You got the Pharisees. Listen, when you come to church, you, you got to be polished enough. You got to smile bright enough. You got to set a list that you got to do. And if you do that, boy, everything's going to be good. And then you got the Sadducees who are a little more practical. And it's like, well, this is how the world really works. And I kind of want a little bit of God. But you know what? I really want my other foot in the world because it, it, this, this is what appeals to me. And listen, you just kind of go through your life and you sprinkle a little bit of God onto it. And then you have the Essians who are like, this world is crazy. We don't want nothing to do, so we're going to build a compound, and we're going to remove ourselves from the world, and we're just going to be together, and anything that is outside, we're not going to share the gospel, we're not going to speak into the life of the culture, we're not going to make ourselves available for the broken and the hurt, and we're just going to come, and we're just going to live a monastic life. And then you have the zealots. We just get the right government in play. The answer is the government. We get the right, we get the right leader. We get the right this. We get the right that. Then everything's going to be okay. And what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is all four of those, this is how he'll conclude, all four of those, although they have different names, are a broad road that leads to destruction. And what he's going to do is he's going to speak counterculturally to all of those and say, listen, the narrow path, I'm the door. And you must enter upon that narrow path through me because all of those those ways lead to destruction, but I lead to everlasting life. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's saying once you have come through that door, how do you live? And the scheme of the enemy is either to prevent you to come into Christ in the first place or once you do, to now start to live your life back out of one of those four ways. So Jesus is a way just to get in, but now these other ways are the way to sustain. But listen, the same grace that saved you is the same grace that will sanctify you and sustain you. It's not that we come to Jesus for, for salvation and then in our own power and our own strength we go try to live out all of these other things. No, we must stay plugged into Jesus. We've got to come to him for our salvation and we remain in him for our sanctification and for our sustainability in this broken world. So he teaches this reality. So let's look at the paradigm shift to when we understand the context of what it is that Matthew is talking about as Jesus is teaching here. Uh, and let's look at it in, in different ways. If we look at it in a very worldly sense where this passage is divorced from that context, then we read it in a way to where 
God becomes a genie in the lamp. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Now, uh, in Israel, if you've ever been to Israel, some of you are getting ready to go with us in January to Israel. You'll see that there's these real brown, kind of small, smooth stones that litter the countryside of Israel. And in this culture and in this day, oftentimes the bread that they ate resembled the stone. That's why uh, Satan, with, with Jesus in, in the uh, uh, wilderness, he, he's saying, turn this, turn this stone into bread. Because he's saying, look, doesn't that look like bread? That, that, that looks good. And, and what Jesus is saying, uh, what father, earthly father of you, if somebody, if your child asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if you ask for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? Now, again, context is important. Good things. What, what are those good things? What are those good things that he's saying? I can think of all kinds of selfish good things. And if I read this out of a lens of a worldview that is in opposition to what it is that Jesus is actually teaching, then I can think of those good things, and if I just ask for it, then I'm going to get it because that's what he's going to do. That's what it says right here. So I'm going to name that, and I'm going to claim that. Now, this is what ends up happening when you read that through that lens. You either become mad at God or you become mad at yourself. Because I'm a spiritual taxpayer. I pay my taxes, I come to church, I read my Bible, I do all of the things. So God, how dare you not give me what I'm asking for? Because I paid my taxes. I'm ready for my refund. I'm ready for my, I've sown into it. Now, where's my refund? So you become mad at God because you're doing all the things, but he's not responding. You're hitting the buttons. I pressed it in. I've rubbed the lamp. So now I'm mad at God. Or you become mad at yourself. Well, I read the Bible 30 minutes a day. I guess I need to be reading it 45. I guess I need to read it an hour. I've been supporting the work of the ministry of the church, but, man, I guess I've not been given enough. I've been serving the Lord, but I've been serving him Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Do they got anything else going on up at the church? I got to get up there because evidently it's not paying off and I got to do more. And so now you're mad at yourself because you're not a good enough follower of Jesus. And in reality, he's saying it's neither of those. It's relying upon me and abiding in me. You don't control me. God's not here to serve you. He's not our butler. Jeeves, no, we're here to serve him. We're here to serve him, to follow and to rely upon and to stay plugged into to him and to him alone. Now, if you notice, if you go back and read the Lucane uh, parallel, Luke's parallel of this, uh, when it says that the Father who is in heaven gives good things to those who ask, you know what he says in Luke? You know what the Father will give them? He replaces good things with the Holy Spirit. In other words, 
what is being said here is those good things are everything that we just read in the Sermon on the Mount. Those are the good things. It's the character and the life and the way of a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you don't just ask and knock and seek at the door of Jesus for salvation, but you stay there in persistence of asking and knocking and seeking for sanctification as well, he will give you the good things of living out the Sermon on the Mount because the world can offer us all kinds of things that they call good, but the truth of the matter is they don't bring us any joy. They don't bring us any peace, but when you apply the truths of Jesus' teaching to your life, that's when you find peace and joy. These good things are the work of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, and that's ultimately what he's getting at. And when you read this in the context of the rest of Matthew's gospel, he uses the word good over and over and over again. And it is always talking about the moral dependence upon our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's all talking about him at work in us. He's always going to, to contrast good with evil. And good are those that are in Christ Jesus. For instance, Matthew 12, 34 through 35, you brood of vipers. I love that. We want to make Jesus so weak. That brother said, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? So how can you speak the things of God? How can you speak the things of righteousness when you are evil? You can't do it apart from Christ's righteousness. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Well, how do we go from good to evil? How do we go from death to light? How do we go from darkness to light? Faith in Jesus. Matthew 19, 16 through 17. And behold, the man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do? Inherently, he understands that there's a standard, right? But he's asking the wrong question. Not what must I do, but what it is that Jesus has done. Who must I serve? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. This is the same verbiage that is used here about receiving the good things when we pray and ask God to work and to move in our lives. Matthew 22.10. I'm just going to give you a few of them. It's all throughout Matthew's gospel. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So we see this contrast. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Matthew 25, 23, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. But there's going to be many individuals that are going to say at the day of judgment, Lord, didn't we do all these things for you? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we serve? Didn't we do all these? We were a servant of yours. He'd say, depart from me. I never knew you because you were not a good servant. How do you become good? It's not through keeping the list of rules that the Sermon on the Mount is saying so you earn salvation. You do those things because you have been saved and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life brings about that power. And that's ultimately what this passage of Scripture is about. Let's read it again with the understanding that what is being asked for is that the believer is still at the door of Jesus. Not for salvation, and now we're at the door of worldly wisdom. Now we're at the door of finances. Now we're at the door of power. Now we're at the door of status. Now we're at the door of religion. But the believer that stays at the door of Jesus and continues to ask and to seek and to knock so that what has just been preached to be the marks and the measurements of a follower of Jesus Christ are being manifested in that individual's life. Ask and it 
The good things of the fruit of the Spirit at work in your life. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things, the fruit of the Spirit, to those who ask him? Radically different. One has a focus on what I'm going to get. The other has a focus of how we're going to serve Jesus. Imperative that we understand that. We see this idea of asking and seeking and knocking. I don't think those are three different ways we approach God. I think they're all synonymous with prayer and the way that we stay plugged in to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, what we see in this passage of Scripture is we see, we see a couple of things. Uh, we, we see the control of God over all things. We see the control of God over all things. Uh, listen, when we say plugged in prayer, which is at the heart of what this passage of Scripture is talking about, uh, prayer is really the recognition I don't have the power in and of myself. I, I need Jesus for all things. And how quick are we to relegate prayer to a last resort instead of a first response? I've gone through the, I've done the pro and con list. I've, I've gone through everything that I can think of. I don't have anything else on my list, so I guess, I guess it's time to pray. And we make it a last resort instead of a first response. Before you do anything else, we should go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, help me. Isn't there a difference between your day when you just rush out of the house without spending time in prayer as opposed to before you start your day, you're praying over what you're going to encounter that day. You're praying over your children. You're praying over your spouse. You're praying over your marriage. You're preparing for war. You're preparing for battle. I don't know about you, but I notice a difference, a radical difference in my life when I start it with prayer and when I don't. And what Jesus is teaching here is keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking at the door of Christ and allow him to work in and through your life. Secondly, we see the contrast between God and man. The contrast between God and man. Notice in in the text, there's a a shift that he goes away from his disciples to the other individuals that that are there. Uh, But in a sense, he's talking to everybody. And he says this in verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If you then, he's talking about the sin nature of humanity. Notice he didn't say, if you notice uh, that uh, we are all evil, he says you are evil because he is perfect in every way. And we see a contrast between God and man. And isn't that good? Because our God isn't like some Greek mythological God who's always conniving and limited in his power and is always trying to gain more for himself and uh, is very capricious. And you don't know how he's going to relate to you. You don't know if he has your best interest in heart. You don't know if he's actually going to be for you or against you or if he's using you. Listen, God is not like man that he would lie. God is perfect in every way. He is not, has no shifting shadow in him whatsoever. He He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that ought to be good news for each and every one of us because we know where he stands, and so therefore it's not, Lord, where are you? It's an assessment of where are we. 
because he doesn't move. He doesn't move. And we see this contrast between God and man. That is good news for us because we need to understand who it is we're praying to. Lastly, we see the continuous reliance upon our Heavenly Father. And that is the ultimate premise of what we read in chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. That at the tail of it, everything that has just been preached, he's saying, listen, for those of you that have already entered the kingdom through faith, you, you, it, I'm not calling you to go off on your own now and figure it out. You need to stay at the door of Christ and continue to ask and to seek and to knock. Allow the Holy Spirit to examine your life this morning. At whose door are you asking? At whose door are you knocking? At whose door are you seeking? The world and its wisdom? finances. Do you think that's the best thing that could happen to you? If I just had more money, boy, life would be a whole lot better. Not if I had more Jesus. Not if I was more obedient. Not if I was plugged in in a deeper level to Jesus Christ. But if I just had more money and so I'm knocking at the door of finances. I'm knocking at the door of religion. Again, it's based upon me and I'm going one of the four paths. I'm either a Pharisee, a Sadducee, an Essen, or a Zealot. And if I could just do one of those four things better, then I'm going to have more joy and peace. Are you at the door of Jesus? Just as you were the day you came to faith in him that you recognized, I can't do anything. I can't earn my salvation. I am dead in my trespasses and sin. And apart from Jesus Christ radically moving in my heart, I have absolutely no hope because I know that I am separated from him and there is nothing that will bridge the chasm. Do you remember that moment you placed your faith and trust in Jesus? Are you still at that same door? Do you still have that mind frame? Do you still have your heart set on him to say, God, apart from you, I have nothing. Apart from you, I'm completely empty. At whose door do you knock? On what path do you walk? The broad one that leads to destruction, although it has many names, or the narrow one that has one name, and it's Jesus. He says to all of us, come to me, you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And he doesn't move. He doesn't change. That call that went out over 2,000 years ago is still the call that goes out today. May each and every one of us find ourselves at the door of Christ. And may we continue to ask and to seek and to knock, knowing He is good to give us the things that we most desperately need. And those aren't of the world. They're of his kingdom.